Just a quick note to let you know that today's podcast is part one of a two-parter, and we'll be running the second half of the podcast next week. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy is unfortunately unable to join today. It turns out that the safe house where he's staying, which is operated by the Middle Tennessee Patriots, an armed people's militia in which Jeremy holds the rank of colonel, doesn't have good internet. And besides, he's just back from the latest protests where his group is pushing for full immediate reopening and for immediate preemptive elimination of all the old and infirm. Uh, so Colonel Goldcorn is tired but uh, Jeremy, I salute you and your militia's mission to restore freedom, whatever the cost. Uh, today on Seneca, we are delighted to welcome back to the program Ambassador Kishore Mabubani, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute, National University of Singapore, or NUS. Uh, Kishore is a long-serving diplomat for Singapore, where he served as UN Ambassador for many years. Uh, Professor Mabubani is a noted scholar and author of many books, the most recent of which is titled has China won the Chinese challenge to American primacy? And that will be the subject of our conversation today. Professor Mabubani, Kishore, if we may, welcome back to Seneca. Happy to join you. Great. Kishore, you have written a book that I suspect is going to be hard for a lot of Americans to read because it is pretty unsparing in how it treats certain myths and, and cherished beliefs that Americans have about themselves and about their role in the world. And while it is very critical of China as well, I, I do think it is, it also gives Beijing a lot of credit that Americans have been loath to give, especially in recent years, uh, in this charged political environment. Uh, so my, my sense is that in recent years, it's often fallen to Singaporeans uh, to speak hard truths about both China and the United States. And as not just a Singaporean, but also somebody of Sindhi descent, a member of a, 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 a third great civilization, as it were, uh, you maybe are well suited to that role, especially. Uh, were these, I think, are, were, were these, do you think, important factors in enabling you to write the kind of book that you've written? Yeah, I think uh, it helps that uh, I'm neither American uh, not Chinese. Uh, so hopefully I can be independent, objective, neutral uh, in my analysis. And I must emphasize that there's one key reason uh, why I'm being very critical of uh, United States in my book, because I actually argue one of my main theses is that uh, the United States has made a big strategic mistake uh, in launching a major geopolitical contest against China without first working out a comprehensive long-term strategy. That's An right. insight, which as I say in the book, was given to me by Henry Kissinger at a one-on-one uh, -on -one lunch. And you know, another uh, sort of well-known piece of strategic advice from a Chinese strategic thinker is uh, know thine self, know thine enemy, fight a thousand battles, win a thousand battles. Mm. And what's interesting is that the United States is violating two of these key precepts 
when it comes to knowing thyself, Americans know their strengths very well. And their strengths, as I say in the book, are formidable. But the Americans are not aware of their great weaknesses, which is where I fill in the rest of the picture. Similarly, Americans are aware of China's weaknesses, uh, but they're not aware of China's big strengths. And that's also where I fill in the uh, blanks there. And I say, hey, you see only the weaknesses. Are you seeing the strengths? So in a sense, I hope that uh, my, those American friends of mine who know me well understand that I'm actually trying to help America formulate a more intelligent, thoughtful, uh, wiser policy uh, in managing the rise of China. But it's not just written for an American audience. There's one uh, very important, I think very uh, crucial passage in the introduction in which you address yourself directly to President Xi Jinping where you make up a strategy memo uh, to to the president of China, where you talk about uh, the United States and its core sources of strength, which you think that she is possibly in danger of underestimating. Uh, we'll we'll get into that in just a little bit, but let me let me ask you. I'm happy, something I'm happy to elaborate on that whenever you want. Yeah, I think that that's a very a very key. Piece of, of the book, exactly. uh, and I, I don't want people to come away with the idea that you're just merely critical of yes, of, of China here. Uh, but the book was written before the world changed with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, so I want to ask you some specific questions uh, before we get you know too deeply into it. But broadly speaking, how has the pandemic changed things? Has it accelerated trends that were already underway? Has it in any way clarified your thinking or Beijing's thinking or Washington's thinking or maybe the view from other capitals of the world as they watch this contest unfold? You know, I I would have been actually personally very happy uh, if COVID-19 had destroyed my thesis that a major geopolitical contest is underway uh, between US and China. Because in theory, you know, in one of the basic laws of strategy is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> right. So since COVID-19 is an enemy of United States and uh, China is an enemy of COVID-19, China should be a friend of America. And logically, uh, any wise strategic thinker, if FDR was alive, if Churchill was alive, they, they would say, hey, China and the US should now first work together to defeat COVID-19 before we resume our geopolitical contest. But I, and sadly and unfortunately, the opposite happened, which is actually COVID-19 in many ways accelerated and deepened uh, the geopolitical contest uh, between US and China, and therefore reconfirming my thesis that what is happening, this geopolitical contest within US and China is driven by major structural forces, which would be very difficult to stop. Uh, and even COVID-19, a common threat couldn't stop it from continuing. In the at the end of your book, you you suggest that perhaps the one thing that would be able to stop this contest would be if astronomers were to detect a distant comet headed straight for for you know, a rendezvous with planet Earth. Uh, although I, I have to suggest that if that were hap- to happen in this presidency. Trump would find some way to blame Beijing for the comet or for not warning us about the comet or for, <laughs> or the, the comet is a hoax. <laughs> you become a Chinese comet. Right. <laughs> the Chinese comet. Exactly. 
Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the book's title, uh, Has China Won, which I think, you know, is deliberately provocative, probably. It probably has not hurt your, your book sales. Uh, I have to ask, though, why do you frame it in terms of a contest? Because the, the book itself doesn't cast things as zero-sum. You have to recognize, though, that framing it as a contest is going to maybe encourage people who do tend to see it as zero-sum. Uh, mm. So do you, did you have misgivings about that framing at all? No, no. I, and I think there is a very important reason why I chose the title Has China Won? Because uh, as I argue in the book, you know, uh, since the Americans didn't work out a comprehensive long-term strategy to deal with China, they didn't ask themselves uh, uh, unthinkable questions. Right. So, for example, I mean, when the Americans, and to be fair, the United States has had a great century, the 20th century, defeated Imperial Germany, defeated Japan and Germany. In World War II, it saw off the uh, Japanese challenge. It uh, defeated the Soviet Union uh, without firing a shot. So America has got used to having victory after victory after victory. And the danger of that is that it creates a certain degree of uh, what I call intellectual complacency. So behind the question, has China won, is a more important question, which is, can America lose? And of Mm. course, this question is just unimaginable to any American. You know, what what do you mean America loses? America never loses, you know? (laughs) So, but sadly, I mean... I, I would say if you're a betting man, maybe let's say even if it's 60%, 70%, America is going to win this contest against China. But China still has a 30 to 40%, and I personally would give it at least a 50% chance of winning this contest against the uh, United States of America. And, and that's something that, you know, even great Americans can't even think about that idea. And what makes it even more dangerous is that in the land of free speech in America, uh, if any American politician or America, any American pundit stands up and says somewhat bravely, hey, can we consider the possibility that America might lose against China? Gosh, he or she will be tossed in 24 hours. Right, right. To be a defeatist and, and so... Even though something, something I, I suspect George Kennan would ask if he were alive today, no American senior person can say it. It's frightening. You've brought up George Kennan right now. And of course, a major theme of the book is this absence of a comprehensive global strategy. And you had Kennan in mind, of course. Uh, you refer many times in your book to the very famous Mr. X essay that was in Foreign Affairs, which was based on the long telegram uh, in which he lays out the foundations for the strategy that carried the United States to victory ultimately in the Cold War, which was containment. Uh, You are not, however, advocating neo-containment as a strategy for China. Is that correct? Just to be clear, uh, that is not what... Well, uh, the reason, I'm not sure if Cannon, because I've only met him once, okay, so... Uh, I cannot say what he would do, but I read from reading his writings, I think he would understand that uh, you can't carry out uh, a containment policy. You can carry out a containment policy against the Soviet Union that does virtually no trade with the rest of the world because it doesn't cost other countries anything to cut their ties with the Soviet Union. But 
United States, China is now the world's biggest trader. 127 countries do more trade with China than they do with the United States of America. So you expect 127 countries to make sacrifices for themselves just to satisfy uh, America? Why should they do so? And the Chinese have obviously already launched a major preemptive strike against the containment policies by creating uh, incredible amount of dependence on the Chinese economy among more countries in the world, and including some of its uh, neighbors, which are key allies of the United States. Japan does more trade with China. South Korea does more trade with China. Uh, Australia does more trade with China. Philippines does more trade with China. Thailand does more trade with China. So even your close allies are not going to rush in and jump and say, I, I, sir, I will cut off my trade with China. <laughs> right, of course not. Uh, on the topic of Russia, though, these days when people talk about, I mean, in fact, uh, if, you, if you look at the national defense strategy that you cite from 2018, China and Russia are spoken of together as sort of the, the primary uh, adversaries in the world. They, they talk about them both as revisionist powers. You hear them often lumped together sort of China and Russia all the time. Uh, clearly, though, you see these as quite different challenges. How would you contrast the challenges that are that are currently offered by both? Obviously, trade is a gigantic component of it, but let's just, uh, in terms of, of uh, what they are trying to do in the world, in, in terms of the nature of of the challenge that they pose strategically to the United States right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the there is a lot of what I call sloppy strategic thinking uh, in the United States. And as you know, one of the my saddest comments in the book is that the Washington, D.C. overall spends more money on strategic think tanks than any country in the world does. And the quality of strategic thinking in Washington, D.C. is atrocious. Mm. Uh, and you just gave a perfect uh, example of it because when people try to say the U.S. faces now a combined threat from China and Russia, uh, that's a manifestly absurd statement because their strategic goals are very different. Uh, and they are very different animals. They're, they're very, they behave in very different ways, you know. And in the case of Russia, Russia's belligerence uh, towards United States and Europe is simply a result of, unfortunately, United States and Europe taunting and goading Russia uh, into responding angrily by entering into its geopolitical space uh, in Ukraine, for example, without looking at the longer history and as Henry Kissinger said somewhere, I think the bosom of Russia, the bosom of the Russian soul can be found in Ukraine. There are very deep links down there. And you just, you violate into territories without understanding the longer history. This is what Ambassador Jack Matlock had argued, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, after 91. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was, and you know, fun thing, it was completely unnecessary. And here also, as you know, I blame the Europeans because the Europeans have become sadly uh, cowards. Uh, they don't have the courage to defend their own interests. And it's not in, frankly, the number one challenge to Europe is no longer Russian tanks. As I say in the book, it's going to come from migrants from an, uh, Africa that is not developing because the African population, Africa's population 
is exploding and uh, it used to be half of Europe's in 1950. Now it's more than double Europe's population. By 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times that of uh, Europe. So Europe should pay attention to Africa and not get involved in squabbles with Russia, but because it has become so strategically subservient uh, to the United States, it sacrifices its own geopolitical interests. And then by contrast, by the way, the Chinese challenge is very different because the Chinese uh, have no desire to play the kind of military games that the United States is used to playing. And I say, for example, China is the only member of the UN Security Council that hasn't fought a war in uh, 40 years and actually hasn't fired a bullet uh, across its borders uh, in 30 years. So the Chinese realize, uh, paradoxically, the Chinese understand the advice of George Cannon, which is that the struggle with the United States will be determined not on the basis of the number of aircraft carriers you have, number of frigates you have, number of F-15s you have, It'll depend on how dynamic and vibrant your society is right. and how strong your economy is. So it's sort of strange that China is in some way following Cannon's advice and paying attention to the spiritual vitality, right. vitality which as you know, I quote a Stanford psychologist, Jean Fan, who points out that's exactly what Chinese society has today. And American society is, is, as you know, very depressed because it's the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has gone down over a 30-year period. And there is, as two Princeton University economists, Case and Deaton, have pointed out, there's a sea of despair among the white working classes in America. So in America should clearly be focused on its bottom 50% now and not on the struggle with China uh, if it wants to win the struggle against China. That's right. Uh, the U.S., though, isn't the only country that has made strategic mistakes. And in one chapter early of, of, in the book, you focus on what you regard as China's largest strategic mistake, its most critical strategic mistake, which is alienating the American business community. But, but it strikes me that in that chapter, it's not just the specific policies that alienated American business that you focus on. Uh, it, it's the context around that. It was this whole attitudinal shift that we saw after the mm. financial crisis, this growing arrogance, growing hubris. Uh, can you talk about what happened in that period? Why not only did we see this move away from the hide your, your strength and bide your time, hide and bide strategy yep. that Dung had recommended, uh, but how that's linked to this loss of, of American business support and how it's linked to uh, the changes in the security dynamic in the South China Sea and other other sources of bilateral friction. Yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, you, you, you put your figure on something that I think is very important because I think, yeah, I, 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 this is a bit arrogant of me. Please forgive me. Huh? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, clearly, I think I'm providing some new insights in the book that frankly, as far as I can tell from the written materials, uh, no one has provided. So uh, as I argue that uh, China's biggest strategic mistake was to alienate the uh, American business community, which in the past, as you know, in the 1990s, uh, had always put a stop on any efforts to go for China bashing. They say, hey, it's our number one market for Boeing. China's the number one market for GM. China's the number one market. So clearly the American business community had good reason to put a stop uh, to China bashing. But this time around, when 
President Trump launches trade war, I think not a single major American business voice tried to say stop, stop, stop. So question is what went wrong? Why did China go wrong? And one hopefully new insight I'm giving is that, uh, as you know, uh, it's a fact that China became uh, somewhat arrogant after the 2008-2009 financial crisis when it saw America on the ropes and said, hey, we are strong. (laughs) They are on the ropes, you know? There was also a lot of blame. I think they they thought that America had bungled its stewardship of the global uh, financial system, right? That's right. Yes. But I think, but the reason why I think China drifted away from uh, Deng Xiaoping's wise advice to take a low profile and not be too assertive is because paradoxically, China became assertive, not because it had a strong leadership, uh, it became assertive because it did not have a strong leadership. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. That is a very counterintuitive point, and it's a very- no. The the paradox about the two thousands is that uh, it was probably the the decade of the fastest economic growth that China ever experienced. You know, just to give you one statistic, and the year two thousand, just before China joined the World Trade Organization, in nominal terms, forget PPP terms, uh, China's GNP was one eighth. Uh, that of the United States it means the U.S. GNP was eight times bigger. By 2015, it's only 1.5 times bigger. You can see how fast China raced forward in that period. But while China was racing forward economically and becoming stronger and stronger, people did notice actually the strong economic growth was actually a result of the wise decisions that uh, Deng Xiaoping had made, the wise decisions that uh, Chu Rongji uh, had made. And that enabled uh, China to grow. But in that period, I think when uh, President Hu Jintao was the leader of uh, China, I I have a sense that uh, problems erupted. As you know, the problem of corruption uh, exploded and more dangerously, the danger of factionalism appeared uh, in China and people like Bo Zhilai and Cho Yongkang could challenge their central leadership, you know. So, which is why the Chinese, as I say, and this of course goes against all conventional wisdom in America, the Chinese are very lucky that they once again have a strong leader, Xi Jinping, who can now uh, control what is happening in China instead of allowing things to drift. <laughs> it will, uh, that, that's gonna stick in the craw of a lot of American readers for sure. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting point. Truth hurts, you know. That's right. So I think I, all I can do is tell the truth. And, and, and you will find out in 10, 20 years whether what I'm saying is true or not true. I mean, because, you know, you can't, you, the, one of the oldest rules of geopolitics is that you must never base your strategy on wishful thinking. You must always base it on hard realities. Uh, early in the book, though, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you had talked about this, you had written of this sort of imaginary strategy memo to Xi Jinping, urging him not to underestimate the U.S. And you point to what I, I think are, are critical sources of American strength not to be overlooked. Can you talk about what those core pillars of strength are? Uh, well, I think there, there are many, many pillars of strength uh, in the uh, United States. Just to mention a few, you know, the in the case of China, uh, over the course of, we can go 2,000, 4,000 years, doesn't matter, <laughs> thousands of years. 
over the course of thousands of years, the Chinese have learned that the Chinese people benefit when there's strong central control and they suffer uh, when there's chaos in China. So the Chinese fear chaos. Right. By contrast, the Americans love chaos <laughs> because chaos means there's creativity, that individuals can, can fight, compete, thrive. So I say, for example, one of the provocative statements I make in my book is that China has produced one Mao Zedong. And, and what Mao Zedong was, did was incredible, okay? He put together a nation that had broken apart for 100 years. He put it together. That's a massive accomplishment. But what I say is that if, if, if China produced one Mao Zedong, America has produced 100 Mao Zedongs. Hmm. So you have uh, uh, Americans that can produce gigantic corporations, Bill Gates with uh, Microsoft, Steve Jobs with uh, Apple, uh, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, and you can go on and on and on. So America produces lots of giants, you know, and that is America's uh, great uh, competitive advantage. And at the same time, if China has an advantage in the sense that it can find the best brains among 1.4 billion people in the world, America has a bigger advantage because it can find the best brains among 7.5 billion people in the world. For example, you, Kaiser. <laughs> you know, you, you obviously were not born, I think, in the United States. but I actually was, but... but <laughs> oh, you were born? I was born in the States, right? Yeah. But my parents weren't. My parents weren't, right? Yeah. So you can see how the best brains from the rest of the world have come to America. So, uh, and I think it would be a huge strategic mistake uh, on the part of China to underestimate the great strengths uh, of America. So, yeah, because, you know, as Churchill very wisely said, you can always count on America to do the right thing after it has explored all the other <laughs> I think right now, in the contest against China, uh, America is exploring every other option. But eventually, you'll come to the right option, and then you'll become a formidable challenger. One double-edged advantage that the United States enjoys is uh, the fact that the U.S. dollar is the de facto global currency of settlement for, for a huge proportion of global trade. And you point to a, another major strategic mistake that the United States makes, that this is ultimately America's Achilles heel as well. It's a, you call it an extravagant privilege. Um, I think you're quoting somebody else uh, saying that, uh, that it is the, the, the sort of uh, the currency of settlement for, for most trade. Uh, you're, you have a real concerns about uh, America pursuing sort of extraterritorial enforcement of its sanctions, especially against Iran, uh, by targeting countries that settle accounts for, with trade in, with Iran in the U.S. dollar. Uh, explain that and why that leaves America vulnerable. Well, uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, interestingly, um, that you know, sometimes uh, people call me uh, if they're looking for a shorthand. They call me anti-American, but actually, I, I'm being very pro-American and pointing out to the United States that hey. You got great strengths, but you got some critical weaknesses you got to watch out for. And of course, one of them is the US dollar, as you correctly pointed out. And it was actually a former French uh, president, Giscard d'Estaing, who pointed out that the US dollar gives 
the United States an exorbitant privilege because to, be, to put it very simply, you know, Chinese workers have to sweat, uh, work very hard 12 hours a day to produce very cheap, very, very cheap and good products that Americans can buy. And the Americans, all the Americans have to do is just take a piece of paper and print a dollar on it. Then you pay the right. Chinese with a piece of paper. And that's exactly what the exorbitant uh, privilege is. But of course, that's because the reason why China, United States can do that is because it's accepted as the global reserve currency. So when you're the global reserve currency, it's a global public good. As a global public good, it's got to serve America's interests and also the interests of its allies and the rest of the world. And the mistake that the United States has made in its weaponization of the U.S. dollar is that it is now the U.S. dollar is, hasn't really become a global public good. It's become a razor blade. So when uh, anybody outside U.S. uses it, they can use it, uh, as you know, a razor blade you can use to shave comfortably, but you can also use to make a very painful cut. And so suddenly... Uh, Banks in France and UK uh, have had to pay massive fines. The French bank had to pay $9 billion in fine uh, because it was carrying a financing legal trade within France and Iran. But because it used the US dollar, uh, it was subject to extraterritorial application of American domestic laws, which, by the way, is not wise to do uh, under international law. So, right. so the, the United States, therefore, has created a massive incentive uh, for many countries in the world, including his allies. So as you know, surprisingly, UK, France, and Germany have set up a new mechanism called Instex to trade with Iran without using the US dollar. It's not been effective. But it doesn't matter whether or not it's effective or not effective. America is creating windows for other countries to move away from the US dollar, and that's not against American interest to do so. And, do and, and as, as you know, I more dangerously, uh, at the end of the day, why... Why does uh, China use U.S. dollars to buy Argentinian beef? Uh, because it's the only currency that both can create as used as a unit of value. But if the Chinese succeed in creating a digital currency that is actually not Bitcoin, but actually monitored by the Central Bank of China, that digital currency can actually do the same job of the U.S. dollar and say, okay, if you export to me 10 tons of beef, uh, I will export to you a thousand refrigerators. And so that's a, a good trade-off. And the digital currency works out what is the right value, right? It can be done. You don't need the US dollar to do that anymore. And once, once people stop using the US dollar as the main instrument for international trade, it can bring down, as I say in the book, like a house of cards, the global reliance on the U.S. dollar. And the minute the U.S. dollar is no longer used as a global reserve currency, Americans can no longer print dollars to import products. Beyond your, you've got to live within your means. And that might, might, might be in the short term mean a major painful reduction in the standard of living of the average American. That's right. Do you think that though? I mean, we there is still you know occasionally talk about China simply refusing to show up at T note auctions, refusing to to take on more and more of that uh, budget deficit that the the United States has counted on a handful of countries to show up faithfully and to buy treasury notes. 
we've talked about that as a nuclear option before. Is that in the cards? Is that something that, that China can realistically consider? Well, I think, you know, uh, earlier on we discussed how China had become arrogant after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And I'll tell you one specific reason why the Chinese leaders uh, became arrogant after that crisis is because the United States Treasury sent delegations to Beijing at the height of the crisis and actually almost like supplicants uh, pleaded with the Chinese and said, please don't stop buying U.S. Treasury bills because if you stop buying U.S. Treasury bills, the markets will collapse, things will be terrible for America. And the Chinese wisely decided to carry on buying U.S. Treasury bills. So the Chinese thought to themselves, hey, I finally got a good hold on the United States of America. But then that, for the Chinese, unfortunately, was followed by something called QE, quantitative uh, easing. And quantitative easing basically destroyed the Chinese nuclear weapon because now the U.S. could itself purchase its, US, its own T-bills. It didn't need uh, China to do so. And so the Chinese actually, got, from what I gather, got very angry because they thought they had a very powerful hold on America and they'd lost it. Uh, and this, this, these are big strategic shifts, which I'm sure no, I'm, I'm surprised that no one in America has talked about. So the, having lost that strategic uh, hold on America, it's perfectly natural for the Chinese to look for another one. <laughs> Naturally, you know, they'd be crazy not to. And that's what all these uh, moves in the digital currency are headed towards. So for America to assume that it has no Achilles heel is a very dangerous assumption to make. Indeed. So I, as a friend of America, trying to point out, hey, these are your weaknesses too. You better be careful, be aware of them. A lot of your book seeks to correct American misunderstanding about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party itself, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, is, I think anyone recognizes is really crucial to forming any, any meaningful understanding of the way China operates and what it wants in the world. Uh, probably the most influential book that's been written in English in the last 10 years or so when it comes to understanding the party is The Party by Richard McGregor. Um, you do, though, take some issue with some of the basic claims and some of the assumptions that McGregor has. Could you, if you would, describe succinctly what it is that you disagree with in the way that uh, Richard McGregor has described the, the, the Communist Party? Well, I think, you know... Uh... The, it's not just the United States. I think most people in the West misunderstand uh, the, the primary goal. To put it very simply, what is the primary goal of the Chinese Communist Party? That's his name, Chinese Communist Party. And if Lenin were alive today, he would say, hey, the goal of any Communist Party is to destroy capitalism and the, uh, rally the workers around the world to have the workers take over everything and then we create an equal communist society, right? So the primary goal of a communist party is to destroy capitalism. Now, I can assure you <laughs> that you happen to visit a party secretary in any province, uh, in China and you observe, look at his daily diary. What does he do? 
His mind is on business. First thing he does is to go and look at the biggest investor in the province, a capitalist. Uh, it could be Foxconn from Taiwan. And he goes to Foxconn and he says to Foxconn, how can I make your business more profitable so that you can invest more in my province? And if Lenin were alive today, he would turn to turn yeah. that party secretary going to this capitalist and saying, how can I help you make more money? I think Lenin would shoot himself in the head. Right. So and he said, this, you, you, I said, this is not a communist, this is a capitalist. <laughs> so if you observe the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party, and by the way, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has gone so far away from Leninist origins in many ways. Uh, they mean two ways. It's the only Communist Party that has billionaires as members, by the way, billionaires. Sure. Members of the Chinese Communist Party. But more importantly, and this is, this is where the major misunderstanding comes from the Chinese Communist Party, you know, because they, they have the impression that, uh, like the Soviet Communist Party, the Chinese Communist, Chinese Communist Party must be full of party hacks, old people uh, just rising on seniority and age, and not understanding that the quality of mind of the people in the Chinese Communist Party is frankly among the best in the world. And this insight was given to me by a very bright young research assistant uh, that I had in Columbia University when I went there for my sabbatical in March, uh, uh, sorry, January, uh, 2018. And she told me that she was very unhappy that she graduated number two uh, from a high school. I said, gosh, graduating number two is very good. Why were you unhappy? She said, I was unhappy because only the number one is selected to join the Chinese Communist Party. I failed to get in. This is one of the brightest students in China. And what does she want to do? She aspires to join the Chinese Communist Party. So though the bright, young, ambitious, and committed, dedicated people uh, are all joining uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So it is, it is really a meritocracy uh, uh, more than anything else. And this all this dynamism uh, is, is just not understood uh, by, by uh, Americans when they talk about the Chinese Communist Party. But the final and probably the most fundamental point I emphasize is that, as I said, if, it, if, the, if the Chinese Communist Party was really a communist party, its primary goal should be to revive world communism, which is what Lenin and Marx and all wanted to do. Guess what? The primary goal of the Chinese Communist Party is to revive Chinese civilization. Civilization is a word that comes up time and again in your book, and I, I think it's a very important lens through which to understand this this entity that is China. It is a civilization. Uh, a long time ago, uh, Lucian Pai talked about it as a civilization masquerading as a nation state. Culture matters, civilization matters, a nation's civilizational inheritance obviously factors into how it responds to, to circumstances. Um, Howard French, who's a, a writer, a former New York Times correspondent who I much admire, uh, wrote a book called Everything Under Heaven, and he talked about historical reflexes. You know, he really wanted to, 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 to avoid falling into the trap of essentialism or cultural determinism, as do you. You try not to. It's a hard line to walk, though. 
between blithe ignorance of the obvious importance of culture and 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 civilization um you know you don't want to be ahistorical obviously on the one hand but on the other hand you see a lot of people who use a lot of historical clichés that do end up being you know falling into cultural determinism or into essentialism do you have a rule of thumb on this this is the trickiest thing when writing about china do you have any kinds of rules of thumb when you Well I I think to answer your question and I and I hope that any uh American uh listening to this would bear the most important historical fact to know about our times is a very simple historical fact right which is that if you look at the history of the world over the past 2000 years from the year 1 to the year 1820 for 1800 out of the last 2000 years the two largest economies of the world were always those of china and india so it's only in the last 200 years that uh, europe has taken off and then subsequently america took off in the 20th century but if you view the past 200 years of world history against the backdrop of the past 2000 years of world history the past 200 years of western domination of world history have been a major historical aberration now But, all aberrations were natural and so it's perfectly natural to see the return of china and india so what's going to happen in the 21st century and i can tell you this with great confidence and i have no doubt it's going to happen which is that even the past 200 years you live in a mono civilized civilizational world with one dominant civilization western civilization in the 21st century onwards we're going to go back to the historical norm which is a multi civilizational world and it is a simple fact that even though chinese civilization indian civilization are going to borrow many of the positive traits of western civilization in fact both chinese and indian civilization should thank the west for giving them all these positive traits but they will not become replicas of western civilization and so many americans find it difficult to conceive of a multi civilizational world and i hope that what my book does the most important thing my book does is to open a window uh, to this multi civilizational world that is coming a multi civilizational world but not one necessarily of a clash of civilizations as soon as civilizations are invoked people start thinking uh what is your posture towards samuel huntington and his his idea of this clash of civilizations um so you know you've talked about a cynic and a, uh, an indic uh, a western civilization but you distance yourself quite explicitly from the arguments of huntington uh can you explain how your ideas depart from huntington's Oh actually very easily because you know I I I have the great fortune personally uh of having lived through many historical eras so you know it's, it's very strange. Oh you're not that old. <laughs> uh, I'm 70 years old and uh, and you know when I I can tell you I didn't mean to be very blunt when I was a child uh I lived in a British colony uh until I was uh 17 years old or sorry 15 years old and when you live in a british colony you assume and i'll be very candid with you that the westerner is naturally superior to the asian because mm. western civilization is superior then i lived through the great growth of asia 
and I could see how Asian civilizations could do as well as other civilizations. I could also see how much Asians had learned from the West. So I want to point you to an article that uh, Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, former Treasury of the Secretary, and I wrote together in Foreign Affairs called The Fusion of Civilization. I remember that, yeah. So what we talk about is how in many ways Asians have learned so much from the West. So if you come to many Asian societies, uh, and I'll give you a simple example. Why, uh, why has China or why has Chinese civilization, uh, relatively, uh, relatively speaking, been successful in defeating COVID-19? Because China didn't use traditional Chinese medicine. Mm. China used Western medicine to fight COVID-19. So China is happy to take on the best of the West and, and help it to strengthen itself. And so what we need to see now, you've seen a one-way street of learning where Asians have been learning from the West, but the West actually has given up the idea of learning from other civilizations. So what we will see in the 21st century is a two-way street of learning, which I hope will be good for Asia and good for the West too. So it will not be a clash of civilizations. Uh, hopefully we will create mutually learning civilizations. Hopefully is the operative word there, <laughs> because right now it just does not feel like uh, th that that's on the menu. Um, Clash of Civilizations came up again not too long ago uh, in the discussion after uh, the State Department's then Director of Policy and Planning, Kyron Skinner, spoke at an event uh, that the, I think it was New America, uh, put on with Anne-Marie Slaughter, who had held that position previously. And she made some very controversial remarks. But your take on those comments was really quite a departure from, I say, sort of conventional wisdom uh, among the Washington set, or even among the sort of the punditocracy generally in the United States. We focused on, and I, I have to, would have to include myself in this, on you know the historical mistake of saying that chi that the United States has never been challenged by a non-white or non-Anglo uh, uh, challenger before, because you know we point, of course, to the period from 1941 to 1945 with Japan, and. Uh, you, your take is very different. Can you can you walk us through? And, and once once I read that, I was actually quite persuaded by it. I think that I I'm, I'm I tend now to, to to view her remarks much more charitably. Well, I think you know at the end of the day, uh, I believe you know I w I'm a student of philosophy, as you know, that is always better to reveal the truths rather than hide the truths. And I think one of the small contributions I'm making in my book towards explaining why the sentiment against China is so vehement, uh, and this is why actually I'm glad that Kiran Skinner said that, by the way, the word she used, this is the first time the United States is struggling against a non-Caucasian. Non-Caucasian, right. And I guess it's a Caucasian is a euphemism for white man civilization, I guess. Uh, although, interestingly, Kiran himself, as you know, is an African-American. Right. Uh, but of course, you're right. She not the war against Japan in 41 to 45. But more importantly, I think Kiran Skinner has done Americans a favor because he, he, when you look at what's happening in the United States of America and the, the, the emotionalism that is surrounding the China debate, uh, I, I, I say what, what, I, I, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest in my book is that a lot of this emotionalism 
uh, is a result of something that has been buried in the Western psyche for centuries. And this is a subconscious uh, impulse, uh, which I call the fear of the yellow petal. Right. Now, as you know, in the uh, United States, as you know, it's a strange society. You can normally say anything you want, except if it's politically incorrect. If it's politically incorrect, you cannot say it. So you, no one in America, certainly no uh, white American would speak openly about the yellow peril. But I think it's there. It's, it's, it's part of the psyche. And it's something that is driving uh, a lot of the antagonism towards China. And, you know, I was a student of Freud. And uh, one lesson of Freud is that if you are being, if your motives are being driven by subconscious impulses, bring out the subconscious impulses and speak about them. And that's the only way to get rid of them. Then that they're not there, they're still driving your, your brains and your minds but you're not, you pretend it's not there. You shouldn't pretend it's not there. It is real. And it's something that I hope that my book will uh, trigger a kind of discussion about whether or not the yellow peril dimension is, is also affecting the, the somewhat unwise policies that the United States is formulating towards China. I would say as somebody who's been on the receiving end of just those sorts of, of sort of subconscious racist impulses, at least recently there has been more open discussion of this at least on the left at least on uh, within the democratic party uh there's a willingness to to look at racism as a dimension of the xenophobia that we're seeing now because it's just so too obvious you know once trump started talking about the chinese virus we saw a massive uptick in incidents of race-based violence against east asians people who weren't necessarily chinese not that that should matter uh, in any case, I, I, I agree. I think that it did actually, I mean, I think that the right interpretation of what she said was that she did introduce this very uncomfortable topic uh, and, and, and posit it as one of the subconscious drivers of the animus that, that is, we're, we're now seeing toward China. Absolutely. And I hope, anyway, I hope, I hope that open discussion in some ways you know, there is basically what is happening here is that there's a subconscious devil that is at play here. And uh, if you don't bring it out, you don't kill it, you know. Right. I, I'm hoping that by exposing it to the sunshine, you kill it. Because at the end of the day, as you know, America's uh, liberal values are so outstanding and, and the whole world admires America for its liberal values and how it's able to welcome migrants from all over the world and treat them as fellow Americans. So I hope that the over, uh, over time, the liberal uh, American values will stand the test of time and the kind of uh, hidden uh, sinophobia will be exposed and dispersed by sunlight. And that's what uh, I'm trying to do. But I, I must also warn at the same time that uh, I noticed that the, if, you, if, you, if you try to plot on a chart, the demonization of China and the American body politic has been gaining momentum. And the recent survey apparently showed that uh, nine in 10 Americans consider China a threat. And you, you scratch your head and you say, how is China a threat? I mean, uh, does China have an army to invade United States? Obviously not, you know. Uh, so 
that demonization of China is also being subconsciously being fueled by the yellow peril, and that's why it's important to expose it. Right. Um, while we're still kind of talking about uh, nice abstractions in political culture and philosophy, uh, the medieval Islamic historian Ibn Khaldun had this this terrific concept called asabiyah, which I, I'm sure you've you've heard about. Some people have translated that as social solidarity or group feeling. He believed that to be a major determinant of a people's fortune in the world. You don't invoke that word in in your in your book, but you do talk about you know amor patria. Talk about Kennan's phrase, which we've already talked about, spiritual vitality. Uh, and you clearly think that given the high degree of political polarization in the United States, the, the fractious nature of politics in the, in the U.S., uh, China relatively has a lot more of this social cohesion of this, uh, of this, uh, uh, you know, asabia. Uh, this spiritual vitality, really. Uh, it's pretty hard to argue against that idea. But I, I don't think we need to talk about that. I think that most people recognize that to be true. But what I, I want to ask you is, if you talk to a lot of Chinese about it, they will also admit that they are lacking in what we would call civic virtue. I hear it often, a lack of public-mindedness, of, of public-spiritedness, uh, a, a fundamental lack of trust in Chinese society, uh, there is a kind of brutal, amoral, Hobbesian, or even social Darwinian kind of war against uh, of all versus all. And you hear that people lament this all the time. What are, what are your thoughts on that? How did these two things, how can these two things be true at once? That China has this social cohesion and that it suffers so badly from this sort of social Darwinian fractiousness. Yeah, just a quick comment first on uh, the first part of your comment about uh, Ibn Khaldun. The philosopher that you know I cite a lot in my book is an American philosopher. Rawls, yeah. Ron Rawls. And I wish uh, Americans would go back and read his book, uh, A Theory of Justice, because he, he points out something very, very critical. You see that uh, at the end of the day, if you want to create a just society, it's not just about freedom. It's about freedom and, e and equality. And I also always emphasize, also emphasize in the book that the founding fathers of America who got their political ideas, as you know, from uh, British like and political thinkers who also emphasize freedom and, e and, and equality. And I think if, if uh, one, one of the new insights my book gives is that uh, America has departed from the values of its founding fathers. And that's why America has become a plutocracy. Uh, and I'm surprised that not, male, not more people use that word to understand the fundamental challenge that American society faces. And in the case of China, uh, China is clearly, I mean, it has billionaires, uh, but it hasn't become a plutocracy because the decisions made by the government are not intended to benefit the top 1% or top 0.1%, they're intended to benefit uh, the society at large. But you're also right in your comments about the lack of civic-mindedness uh, in Chinese culture. And but of course, you know, some of that is, is sometimes a result of uh, past traditions. And give you a simple example, it used to be uh, socially kosher uh, to spit in public, as you know, in China. And even the great leader of China, Deng Xiaoping, used to spit 
uh, when he when he had a, a foreign VIP visit. Yeah. Yeah. He had a spittoon next to him, and he would spit. <laughs> spit <on. laughs> you can imagine the Europeans' faces going red when they watch this uh, uh, happening. But that's changed. Uh, and you know, when, so when Deng Xiaoping came to Singapore, we offered him a spittoon. He said, "No, no, I don't need it anymore." So, look <laughs> at change uh, behavior, and so I think so. So I think uh, the critical question to us is always, what trend is the uh, society heading towards? And here, as you know, the tragedy I point out in the book is that the bottom fifty percent in in America uh, are feeling very pessimistic mm. uh, about their future. And by contrast, the bottom 50%, and I think it's always very important to look at the bottom 50%, right. to understand the health of a society. The bottom 50% in China have had their best 40 years in 4,000 years. That's right. There's no denying that. And, and, and let me repeat that. The best 40 years in 4,000. I emphasize that because many Americans keep saying, why aren't the Chinese overthrowing the Chinese Communist Party? <laughs> That's all they need to know, right? If the Chinese Communist Party has given you your best 40 years in 4,000 years, is it rational to overthrow them? Why not milk them for another good 40 years before you overthrow them? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've made that same argument um, at, at some length. Stay tuned next week for the second half of this podcast. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help this week by William Yi. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the China in Africa podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta, the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China, the China Marketing Podcast, and Strangers in China. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.